You know, I can't help. Boy, them uh, hymns this morning were so precious. Uh, I, you know, great is thy faithfulness. And something over the years that has really stuck with me as I think about that great hymn is great is my faithlessness, but great is God's faithfulness toward me all the time. And in my weakest moments, folks, uh, whenever I'm struggling to just hold on uh, to what I believe and what I know of God, great is God's faithfulness. Great is my faithlessness, but great is God's faithfulness. And that's a wonderful thing. I Always when we come to sing that hymn, every other line I always say, great is my faithlessness. And then I follow it up with great is his faithfulness. Isn't that wonderful? Psalm 32 in the word of God. I hope you came to study the Bible today. Hopefully that's why we're here after all. And we want to make sure that when we stand before you and and uh, speak that we're saying what the Bible says and not what our opinion is. Uh, you, I, if I stand up this morning and say, turn to Second Opinions chapter 5 and verse 10, you'll know what's wrong. <laughs> because there ain't no book in the Bible called Second Opinions. And we're studying the word of Almighty God today. Isn't that a wonderful blessing and privilege? Psalm 32, the title of the message is Instruction for the Penitent instruction for the penitent. Don't let that big word scare you. That's just an old-timey word for repentance, instructions for the repentant, or instruction for those who are sorry for their sins. I have at least six important introductory truths that we may consider before beginning our study of Psalm number 32. Six important introductory truths. Number one, Psalm 32 is the second of the penitential psalms. There's an entire category of psalms that are called penitential psalms. And these are psalms specifically dealing with the confession and the repentance from sin and God's grace and restoration in that. I'll give you the seven penitential psalms. This is the second one. It's actually Psalm 6. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 130, and Psalm 142 are all considered penitential psalms. This is important as you uh, study and begin a study of the 32nd Psalm because it falls into the category of a penitential psalm. That is another way of saying psalms that are sorrow and confession of sin. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to something that's very unusual in the heading of this great psalm. Psalm 32, it said, a M-A-S-K-I-L of David. This word is a Hebrew word and it means for contemplation or for instruction. Do you see in the heading of your Bible how many people have the Amaskel of David? That is the word. It means instruction or contemplation. And there are 12 psalms that bear this maskel in the title. And it means for contemplation or instruction. Now you see where I got this wild idea that this is instruction for penitence? Because there it is right there in the middle of the psalm, in the beginning of the psalm actually, uh, that this is a psalm of teaching, a psalm of instruction. There are 12 psalms, and this is the first of the 12 which bear this title in the beginning. Thirdly, 
Psalm 32 is closely connected to the 51st Psalm. Those of you who've ever studied the Psalms before know that Psalm 51 is David's Psalm of repentance for his sin against Uriah and with Bathsheba. You remember David was a great military leader and general in the nation of Israel. And uh, he, was, uh, he didn't go out to war one time with his regular soldiers and so forth. And he's looking out across his palace. He's on the roof of his palace. And he sees this uh, young gal out there on the roof of her home uh, bathing. And I don't want to be uh, too off color for church, but you understand where this is going. And David looks at her and he desires her. And she was a married woman and he was a married man. And there was a great sin that occurred the sin of adultery and also David tricks Uriah and sends him out into the very heat of the battle and ultimately Uriah is killed and this is a premeditated very evil thing that David done there was uh, three there was at least two people who died because of this you had Uriah who died and you had the little baby that was born uh, out of a immoral relationship uh, that little baby passed away as well and so David uh, we know and we think that it was possible a year from the actual sin before Nathan the prophet confronted David and imagined the great weight that David bore for what he did and the sin that he committed with this woman and the murder that he committed and the death of the child and so forth and he carried this great sin and Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are connected the difference is this Psalm 32 breathes with the breath of emotion of the moment after David confesses his sin. It's a very, very deep and powerful psalm. Yeah, I encourage you, maybe after you leave here this morning, to go and read the 51st Psalm. It's probably one of the most heartbreaking psalms. It deals with a man who comes to see and understand the weight and the gravity of his sin against God. But Psalm 32 is a little bit different. We believe that the 32nd Psalm was actually written sometime after the 51st Psalm. So Psalm 51 comes first. It's, very, it's got the heat of emotion, the heat of passion, the breath of emotion of that moment when David sinned and confessed it. He writes a song and a poem commemorating this event. But then after some time in reflection and some time to think and contemplate about what happened and what God did to him, uh, we believe that David writes the 32nd Psalm. And this is important because I want you to notice a key verse in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and verse 13. Now, right now I'm snowballing a little bit because I forgot my tea back here on the back. And uh, while you're turning, I'm going to go step over and grab my tea. You don't mind, do you? It's all right. Got to have my tea. Psalm 51, verse 13. Everybody there? Say amen. The Bible says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return unto you. Uh, David knows that one of the reasons why God has allowed this in David's life and why God is bringing David through this great sin that he committed is so that David's life and what God did with David, David's confession, David's, com con uh, David's repentance, David's penance, all of that, God is going to use that to teach Israel a great lesson. We're going to get to that in just a moment. And what we believe 
is that this 13th verse where David said, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall return unto you. We believe that Psalm 32 is the teaching of the ways of God in confession, remorse, sorrow, and repentance because of sin. Now this is an important thing. The difference between these two great psalms is that David in Psalm 32 has had a lot of time to think about what he did and what God did in response to his sin, whereas Psalm 51 is sort of the passion of the moment where David confesses and is restored. Fourthly, this is the first time since Psalm 1 that we have this introductory phrase, blessed is the one, or blessed is the man or woman, blessed is the person. It has been 31 psalms since we have seen this introductory portion. This is important because you may not be able to see it in your Bibles, but the word blessed is in plural and it's blessednesses. I looked it up and that's not a word, but it is now. And uh, maybe I'll give Webster Dictionary a call and tell them. You know, they add so many thousands of words every year to our English dictionary. But blessednesses, that means that there's plural, many, manifold, sundry, lots of blessings associated with the one. And we're going to talk about that. When the Hebrew writers wanted to emphasize something and they wanted to lay stress upon something they would put a word in the plural form it makes the word emphatic it makes the word intense it intensifies the word david says oh the blessednesses of the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered oh the manifold blessednesses the supernatural blessing of those who come to know what it means to be forgiven by God. Now, I want to just discuss very briefly the differences between Psalm 1 and Psalm 32. The blessednesses in Psalm 1 are associated with those who choose the righteous path and who do not choose the ungodly path. But the blessednesses, the manifold, mighty blessed, the many blessings of God in Psalm 32 are associated with those who have taken off down that path and have stumbled and tripped and fell and fallen into sin and come to know and understand what it means to have God pardon them because of their sins. This is a, a distinction that we need to make in an introductory portion Fifthly, Paul quotes from Psalm 32, 1 and 2. And this is the kind of stuff that you look for when you're beginning a study of any of these psalms. Paul quotes from Psalm 32, 1 and 2 in Romans chapter 4. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul is making his argument and he pulls from Genesis 15 and from Psalm 32 to prove that human beings are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. And one, one of David's very powerful and profound arguments that he raises is that it's always been by faith alone that human beings have a right standing before God. The saints of God in the Old Testament were not saved by their works, but rather they were saved by faith alone, in God alone, by God's gracious and merciful covenant alone. 
And Paul pulls from this 32nd Psalm and he builds his great discourse and his argument in uh, Romans chapter 4. He builds upon the foundation of Psalm 32. This is an undergirding text. And this is a powerful text that we have before us this Lord's Day morning. Sixthly, one of my favorites, Augustine, the great patriarch of the Christian church. Augustine had the 32nd Psalm inscribed on the wall next to his bed before he died in order that he might meditate on it better. This was a favorite psalm of Augustine. This is important. Augustine said that he liked this psalm so much because, quote, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner, end quote. <laughs> the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Isn't that a very wonderful statement? Do you know yourself to be a sinner before God this morning? And if you do, we're going to talk about what God does about our sin. Let us come to this great portion of God's holy word that we may find instruction and encouragement as to how God responds to the sins of those who are repentant. I'll say it again. Let us come to this great portion of God's holy word that we may find instruction and encouragement as to how God responds to the sins of those who are repentant. The 32nd Psalm is a celebration of God's forgiveness. And it moves far beyond merely the assurance that God forgives us. But it moves boldly and declares that the many and sundry blessings associated with God's pardoning forgiveness are confession and the celebration of our restoration. I have two simple points. I actually had five. <laughs> and then I looked down and noticed my notes were way longer than they should have been. But I have two of them this morning. Number one, the incredible Lord who completely forgives. And number two, the crushing weight of unconfessed sin and relief from it. I'll say it again. Number one, the incredible Lord who completely forgives in verses one and two and the crushing weight of unconfessed sin and relief from it in verses 3 through 5. There are three key words in the first two verses of Psalm 32 that describe sin. And these three key words really encapsulate all that the Old Testament has to say about sin. There are three words, notice them with me in the text. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Did you find them? The word transgression, the word sin, and the word iniquity. These are the three key words in the Hebrew Old Testament that describe what sin is. We're going to talk about these. Number one, transgression. This word transgression means to go away from or to rebel against. This is a strong word. This is the first word that David chooses. We must come to understand that all sin is primarily against God. 
All sin is primarily against God. I'm not saying that other human beings don't get caught in the crossfire. That there's not people that's caught in the middle and hurt because of what we do that's wrong and the bad things, the evil things that we do. But ultimately, the buck stops with God. One time I had a job and uh, was working with a young man and I was witnessing to him. And he asked me the question. He said, well, why is God so angry about lying and things that we do? You know, after all, everyone lies. After all, everyone sins. And I'm not nearly as bad as somebody, you know, that's done very evil things and rotten things to other human beings. And so why is God, you know, we're temporary people and everybody makes mistakes. And the young man raised the question, if God is a God of love, then why does God send people to the lake of fire for an eternity for their sin? This is a very good question that people ask. And he was not to be rebuked for the question. He was uh, just asking. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I learned early on in my Christian experience was this is that while we are finite, temporary people, our lives have a beginning and our lives have an ending. The sins that we commit are ultimately against God who is eternal. So if we sin in the temporal world, in the physical world, even though we are finite creatures that have a beginning and that have an ending, we have sinned against a God who has no beginning and who has no ending. And so because the sins which we have committed are against God, who is eternal, then the punishment for our sin takes on an eternal quality. And even though we live temporarily here down below on planet earth, we have sinned against a God who is everlasting and eternal, who has no beginning, who has no ending. And that God cannot let sin go unpunished. And so what he must do, if he is a just and righteous and holy God, as he claims to be, and he is, he must punish sin. And because God is eternal, the punishment for our sin becomes eternal punishment. David realizes in Psalm 51 and verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David does not mean that he only sinned against God because remember, the baby Uriah Bathsheba were all caught in the crossfire of what David's rebellion was doing with his relationship with God. Folks, be very careful. The greatest of Christians are a half an inch away from the worst of sins. And that's true for David, that's true for you, it's true for me. David ultimately realized that the weight of his sin was against a God who was eternal. David's rebellion, his transgression, his turning and falling away from was against he who is eternal in his nature. Listen to this. A sinner has not come to know the full weight of their sins until they realize against whom they have sinned. The great Bible commentator Alexander McLaren says, quote, You have not got to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. End quote. The very powerful, powerful quote from Mr. McLaren. Secondly, the word sin, S-I-N, this word means falling short of a mark. 
In the ancient world, people who were archers used this word in the Hebrew language for sin. And it has the idea of someone who puts an arrow in the bow and pulls the arrow back and lets it go and the arrow falls short of the target. The target is God's law. The target is the standard of righteousness that God has set up and that's God himself. And this passage says that we have fallen short like an arrow not being able to hit the target. This is a strong word. And this suggests our failure to keep the holy law of God. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The idea that, the, that Paul had in mind was from the Hebrew Bible, actually. In verse uh, number 3, the word iniquity. This is fascinating. Literally, this word iniquity means twisted, crooked, corrupted. This first word, transgression, implies the horrible effects of sin with regard to our relationship with God. In that, we are in rebellion against God. So transgression deals with our relationship with God. The word sin, falling short, deals with our relationship with God's law. And this word iniquity deals with our relationship with ourselves and one another. The whole gambit of humanity and our, all of our relationships are included in these three words. This is a very important text. This is why St. Paul chooses this passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 4 to prove that human beings are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. Iniquity is degenerative in nature. We talked about this in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. The longer and the longer that we say no to God... The further and further that we rebel against Him, the more that we say no to the truth and to the light of God, the darker and the darker we become. The more that we rebel and the more that we allow iniquity to dwell in our hearts, the scriptures say we become more and more twisted as the days go on. And to the degree that not even God can straighten us out. See, this is one of the very powerful truths about the word iniquity that David uses here. We have a twisted and crooked stick. And if we go around comparing our twisted and crooked and corrupted stick with everybody else's twisted stick, it doesn't look that bad. But what God does is He lays our twisted and corrupted stick down next to one that's completely straight and perfect. And in this, we come to understand that we're not to compare ourselves amongst ourselves, but we are to compare ourselves to Christ, who is God's perfect standard of righteousness every moment of every day all the time. Now, somebody said, boy, that was a really rough way to start a sermon. Well, of course it is. But now there's good news. Because for the three words that God uses, that David employs to describe what our sins are like, now there are three key words that describe what God does with those sins. And it's found right there in the biblical text. The first one, he said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So here you have it. Number one, the word forgiven. Number two, the word covered. And number three, the phrase counts not. 
I'm going to talk about this. This is the good news. Literally, a better translation of Psalm 32 and verse 1 is, Blessed is the one whose transgression is lifted off. This word forgiven has the idea of a lifting, a removing of a weight, of a burden. And isn't that what being forgiven by God is like? It's like a great and mighty burden has been rolled away. A burden of your heart that you've been carrying around that's been weighting you down and crushing you underneath its weight. In the great work Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. John Bunyan has something to say of this. When the character Pilgrim comes to the cross, quote, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of that sepulcher where it fell in and was seen no more. The burden is lifted up and rolled off of our back. God forgives us when we confess our sin with a humble and penitent and contrite heart. The burden is removed. Somebody said, that's good news. It keeps getting better. Because God didn't just choose one word to describe what he does with our sins. He chooses three words. Boy, I love the day. I can remember the day when my sin burden was rolled off of me. It felt like a million billion pounds was removed. The weight of sin was rolled away. Psalm 102 and verse 12, the Bible says that God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. I like the old sin, my sin, oh the, or the old hymn, excuse me, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Secondly, the second key word that describes what God does with our sins is the word covered. This word is taken from the Day of Atonement in the Hebrew Old Testament. One day a year, the great high priest of Israel would offer the blood of the sacrificial lamb. He would take the blood, he would go into the Holy of the Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And this mercy seat was on the top of the ark. The cherubim, the golden angels, would be looking, covering their eyes, looking down upon God's mercy seat. And there was a giant lid, and the whole thing was inlaid with gold, which suggests God's divinity. He is the highest and supreme being in heaven or on earth. And this, this Ark of the Covenant is wrapped in gold. And the cherubim are looking down on the mercy seat of God. And guess what's inside this Ark of the Covenant? The broken tablets of Moses and the broken tablets of God's law. And the great high priest once a year would come into the sanctuary and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb upon the mercy seat of God. And it was symbolic the covering is the giant golden lid. This is the word that David used to talk about our sin has been covered. It's the blood. It's the covering which covers us from the broken law. See, inside us, our hearts, is God's law that has been dashed into pieces. We've broken all the commandments of God. But there is a covering for us. 
There's a blood atonement. There is mercy. And so the mercy seat, the blood, the covering suggests that God himself is protecting us from the wrath and judgment which we deserve as the lawbreakers against God. We are shielded from the wrath of a thrice holy God because of the blood, because of the mercy seat, and because of the covering of the ark. That's good news. Very good news, especially for those who come to God in repentance. This last uh, word, it's a phrase, count not or does not count. This is the only word of the three that's actually in the negative. And it, is a, uh, descri it describes what God chooses not to do. God chooses to not count my sin and iniquity against me. This is an accounting term. And it's very strong. God chooses to not count our sins against us. In the ancient world, bookkeepers were, and just like it's not any different in the ancient world as it is in our world, you know, accountants uh, actually, you know, have to balance the checkbook, don't they? At least most Americans, I don't know that they believe in balancing their checkbook. Uh, now I know the federal government doesn't. There's uh, trillions of dollars in debt. But uh, we, you know, you and I don't get the privilege of just printing money anytime we want. If we go start the printer up and start printing money, that's a federal offense. But they got printers that run all the time and print as much money as they want to print. They keep printing it. But nevertheless, this is an accounting term. And God chooses to not dock my account. Why? God chooses to not write my sin in my ledger because of the perfect righteousness of His Son Christ. In Romans, Paul talks about this and he says, Blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute right unrighteousness to him. Imputio. This is a Latin phrase. It's a very strong word. God is, Christ is a propitiation. I don't have time to go into all that. But this is in the simplest terms what it means. God takes your sin debt and he takes it out of your ledger and he turns to Christ and he writes it in Christ's account. Somebody says that's not fair. That's right. That's the gospel. It's not fair that God removes your sin debt and writes it into the account of another. But he does that because he's a God of grace. And that's what David has in mind even here, way back here in the Old Testament. They knew and they understand these principles. In order for me to be in a right standing before God, I must have my sin debt written in someone else's ledger. If I've got my sin debt written in my own ledger when I stand before God, I will be cast into outer darkness into a lake which burns with fire and brimstone forever. This is the second death, John says. Now, do you see now why David begins this great psalm? Blessed is the one whose transgressions are lifted and forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Blessed is he who God chooses to not impute or count iniquity. Do you know that blessedness today? Do you know what it's like to have God lift your burden, to cover your sin, to take your sin debt and write it in the checkbook of someone else? This is the gospel message. Oh, the blessednesses, many of them, 
of the person to whom God forgives. Secondly, the crushing weight of unconfessed sin. Notice verses 3 and 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my, uh, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Look at how heavy the hand of God is on David. That's my point. The heavy hand of God. When we do not come to God and mean business about our sins, we are under the heavy hand of a holy God. In verse number 3, David said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. This describes the condition of someone who doesn't know what it's like to have God roll the sin debt away from them and lift the burden of sin from off their shoulders. It's like a pressure cooker. When we don't come to God in confession and remorse and repentance for what we've done, the heavy hand of God rests on us. Why would God do that? Is God unkind? No. God wants us to come to Him. God wants us to feel that pressure of needing to confess our sins to Him. And He wants us to run to Him in prayer, seeking His forgiveness. Now my final point. Verse 5. This is the longest verse. In all Psalm 32, this describes the relief which comes from God's forgiveness. When we come to God repentant, remorseful, and sorrowful for what we have done to God, the relief which we experience is both complete and immediate. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There are two things worth noting about verse 5. Firstly, verse 5 is the longest verse in Psalm 32. And this verse, when the Hebrews do that, the writers in the Old Testament, what they're saying is, is that this verse is the core. This verse is the heart of what they've been saying in that 32nd Psalm. Out of all the verses, out of all the lines in the Hebrew Bible, the fifth line is the longest one. And this line is written to commemorate God's great forgiveness of David. If this psalm is an instruction for those who are sorrowful for their sins and who, and who have been restored to a right relationship with God, this fifth verse is foundational. It's the core. It's the heart and soul of Psalm 32. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Our experience of receiving the wonderful forgiveness of God should be the reality that undergirds everything that we say and do in the kingdom of God. The fact that God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, that should permeate our lives daily. And when we go to talk to others about who Christ is and what Christ has done, you would do well, brothers and sisters, to bring in the reality and the fact that God forgave you of all your sins, past, present, and future. That should be the centerpiece of your gospel preaching and sharing Christ. I was a sinner undone, but God in His marvelous grace chose to look upon me with a forgiving heart 
Secondly, verse 5 contains all the key words for sin, which we previously mentioned in verses 1 and 2. Look at what he said. Look, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. See, he repeats it again for emphasis. David is saying that when he came to God in humble and contrite confession, confessing what he did, that God's forgiveness of him was immediate. Look at the last part of the verse. And you forgave the iniquity of all my sin. As soon as David got real with God, God wiped the slate clean. Wasn't that absolutely fabulous? That's the best news I've heard all week. (laughs) You mean if I come to God and mean business and I'm not holding anything back? David uses every word, all the major words for sin in the Old Testament to describe what he did. I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner. I'm filled with iniquity. And when he did that, God wiped all of it clean. I don't know about you. I've never met anybody that would do that. Human beings are so flawed, aren't we? I mean, we say we forgive, but we really don't. We say we forget, but we really don't. But God's not like that. When God forgives, it's eternal forgiveness. When God forgives, He means business with everything that He says. And if we come to God and our hearts are an open book before the Lord, boy, that's so important. Folks, in your prayer closet, and your time of confession, don't hold anything back from God. God already knows. God looks at us and He says, I know what you are. I know what you've done. I love you anyway. Come to me. You say, well, I don't know what I've done is too wrong and too evil. No, no, no. I doubt that you're an adultering murderer like David. And David said that God forgave him of every sin that he'd ever committed. And restored him to a right relationship. And he writes the 32nd Psalm as a commemoration, as a celebration of the radical forgiveness of God. In closing, when we, when we behold this great man's great testimony of forgiveness and restoration before God, can we say that we have that same kind of testimony? Do you know that you know that you know that God has removed and covered and lifted and not counted your sins and transgressions and iniquities against you? Are you fully convinced of that? If not, today is the day of salvation. Someone says, well, I haven't sinned as grievously as David sinned. No, but we are all sinners nonetheless. May God grant us this kind of testimony before him so that we can say, look at the 8th verse. David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You know, one of the reasons why God very often allows people to be great sinners is because he can show through that great sin that he is a great God who forgives and restores and removes our sins. And the idea here is that we are to be teachers. Teachers of what? Teachers of the forgiveness of God. Are you a teacher of the forgiveness of God? When you speak to other people about Christ, do you constantly bring in the fact that you were a sinner undone in your sins and that God rolled and lifted and removed and covered and did everything that was necessary to bring you right back into a relationship with Him and restore you fully? Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's the goal for our lives, brothers and sisters. Let's pray.
Lord, you brought David through the great trial so that David could bring others through great trials. Just like what Paul said, you know, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Father, help us, I pray, to lay hold of this radical forgiveness, unbelievable forgiveness, otherworldly forgiveness, supernatural <laughs> forgiveness. Let it be real in the lives of your people. Just like David, when we experience God's complete and unbridled forgiveness, we can't help but teach others the same. We ask these things in faith and in Christ's precious name. Amen.